It's the struggle of every Christian, sin. What do we do with it? How do we avoid it? Romans chapter 7 speaks much on it, and that's where we find ourselves today on Graceful Truth. Join us as we learn about the battle of sin. Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Hi there, and welcome to Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. We're in Romans chapter 7 today as we take a look at the Christian's battle with sin. We're going to start breaking down this passage over the next couple of weeks as we look at Romans 7. Who is the man that Paul talks about? The thing he wants to do, he doesn't do, and the thing he doesn't do, he wants to do. Is it a mature Christian, an innocent Christian, ignorant Christian? Who is this man? We'll look at this over the next couple of weeks. Please join us as we learn how to battle against sin. With more, here's Pastor Steve Converse and today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. You can turn over to the book of Romans, chapter 7. Romans, chapter 7. And we find ourselves in the middle of Romans, chapter 7, in verses 14 to 25. And we're going to be taking a couple of weeks to get through this because it is probably one of the more difficult passages in Romans to interpret and to understand, with the exception of some prophetical texts in the Bible. There's not too many other texts of Scripture that when you go and you actually see what people believe about this, they're all over the map. We're going to explain some of those things today, and that's what makes it kind of a a difficult passage, and you'll understand that once we read it a little in a couple minutes here. But the question to ask yourself, and what kind of part of the controversy over this text is, who is Paul describing here in verses 14 to 25? Is he describing himself? Is he describing his own experience? If so, is he describing his experience maybe before he was saved? Or maybe when he first came to know Christ as an immature believer? Or is this experience document his experience as a mature believer in Christ? And so... That's the, the gamut of different opinions of people who are way above my pay, gra- pay grade with a lot bigger brains than I have, uh, and they all disagree on all this stuff. So we're going to try to make some sense of this text this morning and kind of give it an overview, and then we'll dig in a little further next week. But remember, Paul's in the middle of teaching us how to overcome sin as Christians in our daily experience, and it's important to understand that for a variety of reasons. But we can't apply this text of Scripture to our hearts until we first understand what the text of Scripture is saying. Remember, there's only one proper interpretation of any text of Scripture. Some people think, well, that's your interpretation. No. There's only one interpretation of Scripture. That's the author's original intent, the way he meant it to be interpreted. And so we're going to try to do our due diligence this morning to give you that interpretation. But there's many applications. And so a lot of times you'll read a scripture and it means something to you. It might mean something to somebody else. That's not a different interpretation. That's a different application. And so it's important to understand those two words. Because sometimes you find yourself in the midst of a Bible study, sitting around a table, and everybody's going around, well, what does this mean to you? And you share all these things, and the next person shares what, they, what the Scripture means to them, and the next person, you go around this table, and then you move on to the next passage. But nobody really has taken the time to understand what the passage actually says. So you're left with a plethora of different ideas bouncing around in your head 
which is not the way to study the Bible. And that's not the way God intended us to study the Bible. So we want to take this passage really as a whole. And so I want to read it for you, Romans chapter 7, and put your thinking caps on it, because just reading through this is kind of interesting. Uh, Beginning in verse 14, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members." Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Should I read it again? (laughs) I probably couldn't. (laughs) Uh, It's a very confusing text. But when you boil it all down, it's really not. And so that's what we're going to try to do today. I think that it's important that we understand here that Paul must have been concerned that we see this and that we recognize that sin is something in the believer's life and it's something that's difficult. Because he goes to considerable lengths here to teach us these truths. Now, in verses 14 to 24, you notice he basically says the same thing three times. He just begins to repeat himself over and over. He does it three times. And so he's still teaching. Remember the context of this whole teaching. He's still teaching on the subject of justification by grace through faith. And we've gone through all that. So we're not going to spend time here this morning to to reestablish that foundation. But just remember, justification is not something you earn before God. It's something that's given to you as a free gift through his grace. And you appropriate it by by faith. So he has established that justification results in chapter 5, we went through this, in the believer's security. In other words, if God justifies you, if God says you are just, then you're secure. Because no one outranks God the last time I checked. Even though we have some people dressed in black robes that think they do in our political system. But they don't. God will have the last say, trust me. And so we saw that in chapter 5, that in Christ, when God justifies us, when God saves us, when God transforms us, please, if if you're saved today, believe that you are secure in Christ. You don't have to go to bed at night wondering whether or not you're going to be in heaven one day. You don't have to worry about that. That's something that God has already taken care of. He has saved you from all 
your sin. Past, present, future. And so we are secure in Christ. And then Paul taught us in chapter 6 a little bit about his holiness. Why we need to be justified. Because God is absolutely holy and we are not. (laughs) That we are steeped in our sin and somehow we can't just clean ourselves up. You know, I'm getting a little nervous with this water rationing thing. Because I, I like to be clean. Okay, I like to take showers. I like to take baths. I, you know, if I go out and work outside and I come in sweaty, I'm just, just crashing on the I go to the shower and I take a shower. I go home from church. First thing I do is I take a shower. Who knows what people are carrying nowadays? You know, I don't want to get sick, so I go home and take a shower. I de- disinfect myself. And I would encourage you to do the same. Why do I do that? Because I want to be clean. Well, everyone wants their sin dealt with. Everybody knows that we're not clean before a holy God. That somehow we have sinned. Either either we've thought something or we've taken something that's not ours. Or we've lied about something. Or we haven't worshipped God the way he demands to be worshipped. And so we all fall short. And that's what chapter 6 showed us. Is that through Christ, through his sacrifice, through the love of God as he reaches out to us, that we, once again, even though we were slaves to sin, we can become slaves to righteousness. That he can change us. He changes our disposition. He changes who we are. And we talked a lot about the idea that, you know what, once you become a Christian, we're not talking about addition. We're not talking about learning a new way, picking up the Christian lingo and learning some Bible verses and then you just kind of add that to your life. No, the Bible says that, you know what, once you become a believer, the old man is dead and it's buried. It's gone forever. But you still deal with sin, (laughs) just like I still deal with sin. And so if the old nature is dead and buried, why are we still dealing with sin? And so we looked at part of this in the beginning of chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, when he talks about the freedom from the bondage to the law, that we're no longer under this binding, you don't have this burden of the law over us, causing all this guilt. Because why? Because we're free in Christ. We're forgiven as believers. He's saved us. He's transformed us. And so we have the believer's security, we have God's holiness, and we, we also have our freedom in Christ. Now, in verse 14, or verse 7 there, he basically asks this question, well, what if all this is true, Paul, what shall we say then? Remember, Paul's constantly one step ahead of the game with those who are reading his letter, with those whom he is addressing. He's always one step ahead of the game. So he says, oh, you're thinking this because I'm I'm saying this, you're thinking this. So let me answer the question you haven't even asked yet, but I know it's in your head. Have you ever talked to somebody like that? They're talking to you, and all of a sudden you, you, you begin to think, well, wait, that's not right. And they tell you, you know what, I know what you're thinking, but just, just be patient. You know? They know. They, they answer your question before you even ask it. That's kind of the person Paul was. He headed them off at the pass. And so he says, is the, is the law sin? I mean, if you can't get saved by the law, what, what good is it? And we learned that the purpose of the law is not to save us, but it's to show us our need to be saved. And we talked about the idea, if there's no laws, if there's no speed signs, then there's no speed signs. You can drive down Jefferson 100 miles an hour if you want to do it. If there's no law that says you can only go 30 or whatever it is, 25. And so he begins in verse 14 with these three statements, these three outcries 
about his struggle with sin. Now remember, we're talking about the Apostle Paul. We're not talking about some Joe Christian that just, you know, went to church once in a while. No, this is the Apostle Paul. I mean, if you turn to any page in your New Testament, you probably land on a, something he's written <laughs> under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He was, he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Incredible. And yet he's dealing with some of this stuff. And that's why some people say, well, you know, this can't be describing the Apostle Paul as we know the Apostle Paul because I don't think he would deal with this. But we're going to find out exactly what is meant by this. And so in your outline there, you have kind of a breakdown of this text of Scripture. It's basically three different outcries that Paul makes. The first one in verses 14 to 17 is a very general statement. And you're going to notice each one of these outcries against the struggle with sin that he's having follows the same order. First of all, he states the problem. Then secondly, he describes the conflict. And then he says, this is why I'm doing this. This is the source of the struggle. So in all three sections there, 14 to 17, 18 to 20, 21 to 24, he follows the same pattern. That's why it sounds like you're reading the same thing over and over. What's he just said this? So he's trying to drive a point home. So it must be an important point if he said it three times. So in verses 14 to 17, he says it very generally. He just describes it very generally. He just kind of lays it out there. And then you look in verses 18 to 20, he begins to talk about what he does not want to do, but he's still doing it. And then the last section, verses 21 to 24, he says, you know what? Basically, it's impossible for me to do what I want to do. Can't do it. And so he follows this pattern of stating the problem, describing the conflict, and giving the source of the struggle or why this is going on. And so he says, basically there, the first time he does it in verse 14, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. He states the problem. He does the same thing in verse 18. What's he do? He starts off, he states the problem. Nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. He does the same thing in verse 21, which begins the third section. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. So every time he's stating the problem. And then the second thing he does every time is he describes the conflict. Verse 15, what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. (laughs) He sounds kind of a little mixed up, doesn't he? I'm mixed up after reading it. Boy, I'll tell you. And then in verses 18 to 20, he says, well, I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good that I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. So once again, he's describing the conflict. And then the last time he does it, in verses 22 to 23, he says, in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in my members, the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me, what? The prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. And he does the same thing. He closes off each section the same way. List the source or why the problem exists. Verse 17, he says, it's, it's not me, it's sin in me. Verse 20, it is sin living in me. Verse 24, it's this body of death that I'm in. And so he, he distinguishes those three outcries. And he says, basically, you know what? This is who I am. This is what I'm struggling with. Now you say, well, what's the controversy here? The controversy of this passage is, who is the man that Paul is describing here? And there's probably people all over the map, well-respected commentators and theologians, all over the map on this. 
And you have to stop and you ask the question, is this Paul speaking of himself? Is he describing this fierce internal struggle with sin? And then you have to say, well, if it is Paul talking about himself, at what stage in his life is he talking about himself? Is he speaking of the present? That is, of the time that he's writing this letter? Or is he talking about when maybe he was, before he was mature? Or is he speaking of himself in the past? You know, where's he going with this? Who is this man in Romans 7? I'm not going to go into every possible view because it would probably take too long. But the question has divided Bible students from the really earliest days of the church. And even today, people disagree on this. And so Paul is asking two related questions here in this text. How can I live a triumphant Christian life? Would you like to know that? Yes. Yes. And then the second question is how I can achieve victory over sin. I I think that's a good question to ask. How can I live a triumphant, Christ-honoring life and how I can achieve victory over sin? I can't imagine a Christian saying, I'm not interested in that. (laughs) I mean, every born-again believer would say, yeah, tell me how, tell me how. I mean, any true Christian wants to know the answer to those questions. And yet, this is such a serious matter, and yet Paul goes into this kind of confusing text here that kind of shares some points with this. So I want to give you an overview of these various views, and basically, it's, it's rather simple. Some people argue that Paul is describing, um, well, some people say it's not even, he's not even describing himself, <laughs> if you believe that. I mean, that's just kind of crazy. Well, that's hard to believe. In other words, he, he's describing somebody else totally. And when you look at the text, I mean, you don't have to look too long before you see the word I, And Paul's writing it. You see it 24 times in verses 14 to 25. Plus, you see the word me, my, or myself 14 times. So Paul's definitely referring to himself. I don't think he's using some literary device to kind of slick, you know, slide something in here and make it all confusing for us. No, I think he's he's talking of himself. So the question is, well, where is he in his life? Where is he talking? This there's two views. There's a non-Christian view, and there's a Christian view. There's some people that look at this text and say, well, he couldn't be describing himself as a Christian because of some of the things that we see here. Because it's, it's, it's hard to read some of these statements that Paul makes and say, yeah, that sounds like a Christian to me. And so let's look at the, the first thing here, the non-Christian view. The way they support their view, they say that Paul's kind of either referring to somebody else or he's referring to himself before he was even a Christian. And just to let you know, this was the position of the early church fathers, when they read this uh, in the first three centuries of Christianity. Augustine held this view earlier in his Christian life, but he changed. John Wesley, many in the Arminian camp, hold this view. Okay, So the first thing is they say, well, what about the power of God's Spirit as a Christian? If, if this person is a Christian, this doesn't make any sense. Because he says in verse 14, I am carnal, I'm sold under sin. See that there? Would a Christian say that? Then they point to verse 18, And it says, I know that in me, that in my flesh, no good thing dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is, I I, I can't do it. And so they conclude that it has to be a non-Christian because a Christian would know what to do in this situation. There seems to be in this person that Paul is describing here a lack of the Holy Spirit's power. (laughs) And secondly, there seems to be a lack of the peace of God. I mean, look at verse 24. I mean, that doesn't sound like somebody who's living the victorious Christian life. Oh, wretched man that I am. 
Who will deliver me from this body of death? I mean, when's the last time somebody gave you that answer when you asked how they're doing in their Christian life? You know, probably never. Even if they felt that way, they probably wouldn't say it. It seems so far removed from the promise back in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where he says, being justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That seems so far. Paul, what happened here? And so they look at this lack of power and lack of peace. And they also talk about the freedom of believers, which we just got done studying, by the way. Romans 6 has a lot of examples of the believer's freedom from sin's power. We talked about that. That once you become a Christian, for the first time in your life, you do not have to sin. You can say no. God provides a way out, Paul tells us in Corinthians. He's always faithful to provide a way out. Even when we're, when we're tempted, we don't have to sin. Before, we couldn't help ourselves. And so we were under that burden of sin. And now in Christ, we realize that Christ has paid our price, that he's freed us from that. We're no longer slaves to sin and unrighteousness. Now we serve God. We're a slave to Christ. And so if this is talking about a believer, Romans 6 verse 2 says, how shall we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? Verses 6 and 7 of Romans 6 says, our old man is crucified with Christ. The body of sin might be destroyed, that we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. We talked about all those verses. Verses 11 to 12 of Romans 6 says, reckon yourself as dead indeed to sin. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. Verses 17 and 18 of Romans 6 says, God be thanked that whereas you were servants of sin, you've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you, being then made free from sin, you became servants of righteousness. And so they look at chapter 6 and they say, well, this couldn't be Paul describing himself in chapter 7 this way because it goes totally opposite direction. So the people that say that this is definitely a non-Christian in Romans chapter 7, whoever Paul's describing, they say, how could a, a Christian say, I'm carnal, I'm sold under sin? Well, you have to begin to understand the text, okay? The emphasis in chapter 6 was on what? Was on the new creation, right? Was on the new nature, was on the new identity, the new person that we become, the holiness of the believer. Once we come into Christ and we are forgiven, that's who we are in Romans chapter 6. And in that new redeemed self that we are in Christ, the believer has broken, Christ has broken for the believer, sin's dominion. For the first time, we do not have to sin. And so the emphasis in chapter 6 is on that. But when you come to chapter 7, it's different. Paul gives the other side of the coin. I think every Christian knows that even though we're a new creation in Christ, that we still sin. <laughs> I don't think there'd be anybody here this morning who say, oh no, I don't sin anymore. I, I've reached perfection. Kiss the ring. You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. That would be a ridiculous claim to make. All they have to do is follow you around for a day or a couple minutes. And, all right, there you sin, pal. Sorry. I don't believe your story anymore. 
But the conflict is pointed out even in chapter 6. In verse 12, he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. See, in spite of all that Paul said in chapter 6 about the Christian's new nature, he never said the Christian would not battle with sin. He never said that. And that's why we're going to be talking about the believer's battle with sin, because it applies to all of us. Verse 12 implies that as well. It's carried even into verse 13. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness onto sin, he says. So it's still possible for Christians to yield to sin. And that's why we're commanded not to. If it was impossible, Paul wouldn't have to command us not to. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal his grace to your hearts through the teaching of his word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.